This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged reading of Martin Luther's sermon for the celebration of the Epiphany. This is from the John Nicholas Linker collection published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Isaiah 60, beginning at the first verse. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Jehovah is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. But Jehovah will arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And nations shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see. They all gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from afar, and thy daughters shall be carried in the arms. Then thou shalt see and be radiant, and thy heart shall be thrill and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned unto thee, the wealth of the nation shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praises of Jehovah. This is our text. This epistle lesson is an exhortation to faith. It also proclaims the future worldwide preaching of the gospel and the gathering of Christians from all nations. The reference to the gospel as a light, a brightness, a glory of the risen Jehovah implies a distinction between the light of the gospel and that of the law. This distinction should be carefully marked to avoid confounding the gospel and the law and terming gospel what is law and law what is gospel. In the Advent and the preceding epistle lessons, we found the gospel to be a proclamation of life, a doctrine of grace, a joy-giving light, promising and presenting Christ with all his blessings. But the law is a proclamation of death, a doctrine of wrath, a sorrow-yielding light, for it reveals our sins, demanding a righteousness we cannot produce. The conscience recognizing that it deserves death and eternal wrath is filled with sorrow and unrest. But this prophecy of Isaiah touches the wretched conscience in a cheering way. It reanimates it, fills it with joy, and liberates it from the law and from sin. So Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Plainly, the injunction is addressed to one not risen, one who lies sleeping or is dead. I think Paul refers to this passage when he says in Ephesians 5, Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. Undoubtedly Christ is the light of which Isaiah here speaks, and which through the gospel shines in all the world, enlightening those who rise, who desire him. Now those who are the sleepers and the dead, unquestionably all who are under the law. They are dead because of sin. Particularly are they dead who disregard the law and live independently of restraint. The self-righteous who recognize not their wants and defects are the sleepers. Both classes have little regard for the gospel. They remain sleeping and continually die. The spirit must awake them to recognition and acknowledge the light. But the third class, they who feel the power of the law and the torments of the conscience, thirst after grace and sigh for the gospel. They rest not until it comes and is given them. Then they proclaim it. Isaiah is one of these. In such manner do the sleepers and the dead awake and receive the gospel light. So Isaiah says in effect, Permit yourself to be enlightened, or let there be light. 
Allow the light to fall upon you. Thou dead one, crawl not into the grave of thy filthy life, that is, cease to love and to follow thine own evil course of conduct, that the light of the gospel may fall upon thee and abide in thee. And thou, sleeper, awake. Seek not the bed of careless and lethargic security, and of presumptuous reliance upon thine own self-righteousness. Let the true light have some claim upon thee. It is necessary frequently to admonish both classes. The great hindrance of the class represented by the dead is an unrestrained life, and a secure self-righteousness will scarcely allow the sleeping class to recognize and accept the blissful light of the gospel. And the glory of Jehovah is risen upon thee. We have frequently spoken of the little word glory. It means honor, brightness, splendor. The gospel is simply a grand report, a noble cry having origin in a glorious reality. It is not a mere empty proclamation. Thus the gospel is God's glory and our light. It is our light in that it reveals to us God, ourselves, and all else. It is God's glory in that it is the medium whereby his work, all his glorious doings, are proclaimed, extolled, recognized, and honored in the whole world. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. But Jehovah will arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Here the prophet clearly implies that wherever Christ is not, there darkness exists, whatever the appearance of brilliance. Nor does he allow the medium devised by the universities, which say that between darkness and Christ exists the light of nature and of human reason. They ascribe darkness only to the grossly wicked and the weak-minded. They highly value this mediatory light, claiming it is a sufficient preparation for the light of Christ, and that although it is darkness in comparison to the light of Christ, yet it is itself light. They do not perceive how far they err in imagining themselves enlightened. Usually the most erroneous of the schools are the most rational. The sons of this world are for their own generation wiser than the sons of light, as Christ says in Luke 16. Yet they of the schools are not nearer the true light than are others. Therefore God knew of no better way to deal with the pernicious light of reason than utterly to condemn and obscure it. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Human reason is a light which teaches the Jews and all tyrants to persecute and torture Christ and his saints, and which cannot even to this day endure the true light. Human reason always claims to be in the right and to be light, when really it is darkness and condemned by the true light. Being condemned, in its rage it instigates all forms of evil. Here is the meaning of Isaiah, where he says, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. He cannot be understood as speaking of literal darkness. The sun has continued to give its light. He has reference to a darkness opposed to that light, whereof he says, Thy light is come, and Jehovah will arise upon thee. Now they upon whom Jehovah has not risen, upon whom he has not shown, are in darkness. The darkness here meant is simply unbelief, the darkness of human reason. Just as the light represents Christ, or faith in Christ, whereby Christ dwells in the heart, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. Similarly, the reference here to the earth does not mean the material earth. The material earth was not darkened through Christ. The meaning is earthly or worldly men. Men who do not believe, do
do not accept Christ through the gospel, men who remain in their earthly conceptions, in the natural light of reason, as Isaiah himself explains when he says, gross darkness shall cover the peoples. But what is implied? Were not men in darkness previous to the advent of Christ? If he through the gospel brought the light, how is it that darkness made its first appearance at that time? We must remember that Isaiah is speaking only of the Jewish people. He divides them into two classes. One class enjoys the light and the other is overwhelmed in darkness. This was really the case, so he speaks of the earth and the peoples. David too says concerning men in Psalm 2, Why did the nations meditate a vain thing against Jehovah and against his anointed? The entire people of Israel awaited Christ. In the shadows of the law through Christ they enjoyed light. But with his coming their condition apparently was reversed. The majority of them fell, entering but deeper darkness. Yet Isaiah says, Jehovah will arise upon thee. Not the entire nation was blinded. From it is derived the better and greater portion of the Christian church, the apostles, the evangelists, and numerous saints. These are not in darkness, nor covered with darkness. To them Jehovah was preached, and with the result that his glory is manifest in them. Isaiah does not say merely, The glory of Jehovah is risen upon thee, but it shall be seen upon thee. Not only was the glory of Jehovah revealed to the church, a revelation embracing even the unbelieving Jews, but it appeared to them, and they knew him in his glory. They held these fast. Therefore the rising of the light, the gospel, was not taken from them. Apparently we are to understand Isaiah is referring in the latter part of the text to the fruits of the preached gospel, and in the first part to the preaching of the gospel. The gospel arose, admonishing men to arise. After its advent, some became so hardened, so overwhelmed in darkness, that the light did not again rise upon them. It was no more preached to them. But others were enlightened, and continued in that illumination. Such has ever been the case unto this day with reference to the preaching of Christ and the gospel. Some accepted and are enlightened, others, the majority of them, condemn it as error and turn from it. Consequently, they are overwhelmed in their unbelief. The gospel is no longer proclaimed to them, and they are not disposed to hear it. Truly, then, they must be concealed from the rising illumination of this light. Let no one regard this as new or strange. The scripture is unchangeable. Darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people's. If this was true of the chosen people, the Jews, the natural seed of Abraham, to how much greater degree may it be true of us heathen, descendants from one of different blood and nature? We see today that the people will permit no one to preach to them what the Pope and his followers have condemned. They will not tolerate it. Therefore they remain covered in darkness. They have their own preaching wherewith they foster and conceal their blindness, and it befalls them as they desire, as it befell the Jews. Verse 3. And the nation shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. When the majority of the Jews refused to cultivate the fruits of the gospel, and fruit essentially accompanies the gospel, and they continued in their blindness, the gospel expanded into all the world, gathering the Gentiles in place of the blinded and fallen Jews. So says Isaiah in this verse, the accomplished fulfillment of which renders it clear, the heathen nations embraced Christianity and by genuine faith walked in Christ the true light. Such was the increase of the gospel fruit that even kings, the most exalted of earth, humbled themselves under the faith. 
The revelation of these future conditions was made that preachers might not be unduly elated over their conversion of kings or any other, as if they had accomplished it of themselves. God foresaw it all and caused it to be revealed. Besides, he promised the gospel. What is the import of the phrase, to the brightness of thy rising, in verse 3? The prophet styles Christ the glory or brightness of the rising, that is, of the gospel. For the gospel will be continually advanced and preached. It will ever rise to oppose human doctrines, doctrines formerly in the highest degree dangerous to kings and holders of lofty positions. Upon these individuals, first, the evil spirit seizes with his perversions and human doctrines. Having them in his power, he can easily drag along with them the common, illiterate people. Verse 4. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. They all gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from afar, and thy daughters shall be carried in the arms. Now the prophet is about to enumerate the countries where the Gentiles are converted to the faith. From the fact of his calling upon Jerusalem to lift up her eyes round about and see, it is easily evident he refers to spiritual sons and daughters, men and women who believe in Christ. Likewise, the assembling of these must be understood in a spiritual sense. They did not bodily come to Jerusalem, but they believed with heart and spirit in the light risen upon her and round about her. No man can come to the light upon his material feet. Otherwise, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem would have been enlightened. But the fact is, as before stated, they for the most part remained in blindness and darkness. The light being spiritual, we are forced to conclude that the children, the gathering, and the future must also be understood in a spiritual sense. Were we not to regard the light spiritual, we would have to accept the reference to the gathering of the children in a physical rather than a spiritual sense, as the words imply. But with the light spiritualized, the gathering and the coming are spiritualized, and so too must the children be regarded. The seed of Abraham, his natural children, did not come to the light from the mere fact of their flesh and blood descent. They came because they were his spiritual children. The clause, thy son shall come from afar, implies spiritual children from among the heathen. The apostles Peter and Paul allude to the heathen as far away and to the Jews as near. Either once were far off are made nigh in the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2. And again, he says in the same chapter, He came and preached peace to you that were far off, and peace to them that were nigh. Isaiah's meaning seems to be, Look round about thee, under the four quarters of the earth. I will expand thee into all the earth, and thy children shall dwell everywhere. The words of the text were designed to comfort the first Christians at Jerusalem in view of the fact that they were few in number, despised, and in the midst of those who, when they should have been their best friends, were their enemies, as appears later on in this same chapter. It was seemingly absurd for so small a band to attempt an undertaking so vast and unusual and to defy the overwhelming masses. The Jews thought soon to check the efforts of the Christians, even to exterminate them. They began everywhere the work of persecution, expulsion, and slaughter, presuming it easy to root out these poor and powerless people. Foolishly, they failed to see how they but fanned the fire already kindled and scattered it worldwide. Their violence only helped to fulfill this God-directed prophecy of Isaiah against themselves. 
Their persecution drove Christians into all the world and extended the gospel until everywhere the sons and daughters of Jerusalem were gathered to the light. To accomplish an object with eminent success through the instrumentality of an enemy is characteristic of the divine hand. By the very fact of their furious attempts to exterminate the word and the people of God, men but destroy themselves and only further God's word and his people. Therefore it is good and profitable to have enemies and persecutors for the sake of the faith and the word of God. Incalculable comfort and benefit result. Psalm 2 is in point here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing against Christ? The thought is they violently strive to exterminate Christ and fail to see that in so doing they but strengthen him. Verse 5. Then thou shalt be radiant, and thy heart shall thrill and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned unto thee, the wealth of the nations shall come unto thee. By the abundance of the sea we must understand not the water of the sea itself, but the inhabitants of the country bordering on the sea. Isaiah refers to these Gentiles or nations when he says, The abundance of the sea shall be turned unto thee, the wealth of the nations shall come unto thee. The abundance of the sea is synonymous with the wealth of the nations. Thus he shows we are not to understand by the former expression water, but peoples. Again, wealth of the nations does not signify their strength or power. Of what advantage would that be to the church? The reference is to great multitudes. We are wont to call a large quantity of coin a power of money, that is, a great pile of money. Likewise here, wealth of the nations means a great mass or multitude of them. Again, we speak of the Lord of a great country, one who rules over vast territory and many peoples as a mighty Lord. This prophecy of Isaiah was largely fulfilled through the instrumentality of Paul, our apostle. Through his preaching, the abundance of the sea was converted and the wealth of the nations came into the faith. The latter part of this verse is designed to explain who are the sons and daughters that come from afar namely the abundance of the Gentiles on the great Mediterranean, who Paul converted. Thus we have further evidence that the coming to Jerusalem is not to be literally understood. How could such a multitude, such an abundance, such a wealth, gather within the limits of that single city, to say nothing of dwelling there permanently? Isaiah says the abundance of the sea shall be converted or turned about. The thought is of a facing about. The word itself is opposed to the idea of a literal gathering of the Gentiles at Jerusalem. The turning about is the assembling. Before they were turned to the world, now they are changed, turned to the church. Verse 6. The multitudes of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, and they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praises of Jehovah. Having mentioned the nations coming from the abundance of the sea west of Jerusalem, Isaiah now refers to the nations that are to come from the east. Fertile in greater Arabia, far distant from Judea and beyond desert and stony Arabia, is called in the Hebrew Sheba. The thought of Isaiah is that camels and dromedaries shall come out of Sheba and Midian, spreading in multitudes over the country as a vast army covers the land, moving or encamped. And the idea is not of riderless droves. Caravans are indicated by the explanatory sentences. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. In other words, 
In such vast numbers shall the inhabitants of Midian and Ephah come. The multitude of their camels and dromedaries shall cover your country. And why speak only of Midian and Ephah, portions of Arabia? For all, every part of fertile Arabia shall come. It may be asked, is the reference to actual camels and dromedaries? Did they bring material gold and incense? Did the entire inhabitants of fertile Arabia really come to Jerusalem? We must admit that we do not read of any of these things literally coming to pass. Many explain the passage as referring to the wise men who came to Jerusalem from that country after the birth of Christ, as the gospel relates. But it cannot be said of these few that their camels covered the country in great multitude, nor were they the entire population of Sheba. They were but a small fraction of the people. We must not interpret spiritually unless necessary. But since these events have never transpired literally, nor may we reasonably expect that they ever will, since it is a thing inconsistent with natural law that the whole population of Sheba shall actually come to Jerusalem, a mighty nation assembling in one city, since the foregoing portion of the chapter has reference merely to the spiritual light of the gospel and of faith, and to his spiritual assembling and coming, and since the gathering to the church is not by any means to be understood to refer to Christ's physical person, considering all this, we shall maintain the same method of the interpretation, feeling satisfied that the facts force us to spiritualize this latter part of the chapter. We understand, then, the Christian church shall see and be radiant, her heart shall thrill and be enlarged, when not only the abundance of the sea on the west shall be gathered to Jerusalem, but also the greatest and richest people of Arabia from the east. The passage includes the greatest, richest nations, the most numerous and powerful people on earth, the abundance of the sea and the wealth of the nations. In respect to numbers and powers, these represent the heart of the earth's inhabitants. The phrase, all they from Sheba, does not imply that individually they will all become believers, but that the country as a whole will accept Christianity. There must remain, of course, some unbelieving individuals. Similarly, we may say of Germany, which has abandoned its old heathen customs, that the country is now Christian. Though only the minority are true Christians, yet for the sake of these we call the German nation Christian. And again, the Jewish people as a whole were called the people of God in Numbers 25, when many of them worshipped idols. Finally, Isaiah says, They shall proclaim the praises of Jehovah. The true, the special work of a Christian is to confess his sins and his shame and to proclaim God's grace and work in himself. No man who fails to behold God's grace in this light of the gospel can show forth God's honor and praise. No man who clings to his own light, his own human nature, who values his own works, his own efforts, can perceive the grace of God. He continues it in his own old, blind, dead Adam nature. He does not rise to behold the light. He prefers to sound his own praises. Isaiah exalts the people of wealthy Arabia because they are true Christians who proclaim only the praises of Jehovah, taught to do so undoubtedly by the light of grace and the gospel. Amen. This has been a presentation of Classical Lutheran Preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.